Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a special guest today who is a Bitcoin programmer and a Christian libertarian. His name is Jimmy Song, and he was born in Seoul, Korea, Mm -hmm. and immigrated into the U.S. as an eight-year-old when his family started attending a Korean Presbyterian church. He is the author of three books, Programming Bitcoin, The Little Bitcoin Book, and co-author of Thank God for Bitcoin. Jimmy, I think our listeners already know what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. If they didn't get it from the intro, it's gonna, it, it reflects on something that they're not paying attention to what you're saying. So, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So the, the the topic is Bitcoin, and I have to, you know, give the obligatory disclaimer that whatever level of excitement. I or Jimmy shares about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies does not reflect any sort of endorsement about what you should do with your personal finances. That is something that is your choice and you need to seek uh, professional, trusted advisors on that. So we are not as an organization, LCI is not as an organization giving any sort of financial advice. So with that disclaimer aside, Jimmy, tell me about this book, Thank God for Bitcoin, which is a great title. Hmm. And honestly, I'm, I'm so glad it is that title because it's not a technical book. Mm-hmm. It's a little more on the casual side, which I think you'll explain why it sort of comes off that way, mm. at least to me, in terms of how it was written. But it, it's very relatable. Mm. It also is not super lengthy. Most libertarians would spend forever talking about sound money. And <laughs> you like they would spend hundreds and hundreds of pages writing about sound money. And you talk about sound money. This is going to be most of our conversation. But... Um, mm. Yeah, it's just so relatable, reachable, um, relevant in a number of ways. And so the story of how it came about has to do with the last year. Mm. So I, I'm going to give you a chance to just sort of share how did what uh, was a catalyst for this book. Yeah, so uh, I, I met George McHale, who's one of my co-authors, at uh, a conference that he held. He's uh, the brother-in-law of Russell Kuhn, who wrote the forward. Russell Kuhn is the left tackle for the Carolina Panthers last year. So... Uh, he and I met and we were talking about Bitcoin and he was putting on a Bitcoin conference and we realized that we were both Christian. And as a result of that conversation and many after it, uh, we decided just between the two of us and one other guy to do something like a Bible study on the topic of money. Um, we knew that there were a lot of verses on money. Uh, this one of the things that Jesus talks most about. So we went through it. We, we had like a six-week Bible study, the three of us. The third guy ended up dropping out after that, but uh, but George had uh, during the Bible study re- recognized that he didn't really understand economics that well, and uh, and one of the things that he really wanted to get stronger on was uh, just the actual economics of what Bitcoin is and what sound money should be and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to study a couple of books uh, that had sort of like a Christian perspective on money production and economics. So we read two books. Uh, One was The Ethics of Money Production by Guido von Halsman, and the other was Honest Money by Gary North. Both of them are fantastic books, and they're uh, both written by Austrian libertarian 
Christians, basically. I, I believe Guido von Holzman is Catholic and uh, Gary North is uh, Protestant, but you know, like they, they both yeah. really understand Austrian economics really well and lay out the case for sound money. So we studied both books going a chapter a week. We invited a bunch of other people, mostly people that we have met in the Bitcoin community that were Christian. And, uh, and there was uh, always around eight to 10 people every week. It was like every, I think, Friday, and we would get together, talk about the book. And it was really, really good. We got a lot out of it. And this was, of course, during COVID. After uh, finishing the second book, Honest Money, we realized that both books were kind of depressing at the end. Uh, because when you read both books, the conclusion of both books, after essentially arguing that fiat money is really evil, that it is horrible for civilization, and we need to fix it. All right, so how do we fix it? And the conclusion of both books was, we need to convince enough people to go back to the gold standard uh, or backing the dollar with gold, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which when, when we read it, we were like, okay, that's not going to happen. So like, there's no hope <laughs> in this thing. Right. Uh, but we, we were, all of us being Bitcoiners were like, you know, like there's Bitcoin and this is clearly what the conclusion should have been. Now, both books were written before Bitcoin really even existed. So we yeah. get why they had to conclude it that way. But we we felt like okay we need we need a new book that essentially reviews a lot of this stuff in like sort of a digestible way, and then has a different conclusion saying you know in, uh, the the conclusion is you should go get Bitcoin and opt out of the system that's all corrupt and horrible for, uh, for all sorts of reasons and. Ultimately, that's what we decided to do. We took, uh, you know, eight people from that Bible study, basically. And we wrote the book over a period of three months. um, And, you know, we revised every chapter. Um, Part of what you were saying about how short it is, it's because we wrote it with eight people. The the thing about uh, writing it alone versus writing it with other people is that, you know, like there's some brutal truth there, right? Like people tell you, okay, you know what, this, this doesn't work and we need to cut mm-hmm. this. And uh, so we really distilled it down to the essence. And that's, uh, that's uh, you know, hopefully a product that, you know, yeah. people like you find helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I didn't really notice it until I was reading about the author's at mm. the end. Mm. And so it was like, oh, that's right. This was written. And I think you, it might have been mentioned at the beginning of the book. Mm. And it's not a lengthy book. It's very mm. accessible. But it had one voice. It was very mm. good that way. And I, I you know, know the challenges of doing that you know, with co-authors. It's like, you know, you're going to mm. kind of do your best to have one voice unless, you know, unless it's a debate book or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So how long have you been into Bitcoin? And I don't mean invested in Bitcoin, but just aware and kind of interested and intrigued. Yeah, so I learned about Bitcoin 10 years ago on a website called Slashdot. And if you don't know what that is, that's a a tech geek website. Um, And I've been a programmer all my life. So when I saw that in 2000, I I think it was February of 2011, um, you know, basically the headline was, Bitcoin has reached parity with the dollar. And I couldn't even really parse that sentence. I, I didn't know what it meant. <laughs> so mm. I really dug in and uh, found out what it was uh, pretty much from the beginning. Um, and one of the first things that I learned about it was that there was only 21 million ever that would ever be. And uh, my immediate instinct after learning about that was, oh, if this thing has any legs, I better be one of the first people to get it and not one of the last. Um and this was back when, you know, it had 
reach dollar parity. So it was one dollar at that point uh, back in, back ten years ago. Um, it, I unfortunately couldn't get into Bitcoin um, as in buying it because it was really annoying, and I sort of gave up after a while trying to buy Bitcoin because you had to transfer money to a service called Dwala, and then you had to transfer from Dwala to this exchange called Mt. Gox in Japan, and then buy it, and then you can transfer it back to your own wallet and so on. Um, probably one of the biggest regrets of my life is, mm. you know, like uh, being, uh, like getting too annoyed at the process and not following through with it. Cause you know, had I done it then, you know, I, I, <laughs> I would have done much better, but that said, you, you wouldn't know, have had time for little podcasts like mine. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> the thing is, uh, you know, it might be like a very small percentage of your portfolio when it gets it, when you get in, but it ends up dominating your portfolio later on. If you, yeah, yeah. If you have some conviction in it. Uh, and that certainly happened to me. So I, I can't say that, you know, like, you know that I, I missed the boat at that point or anything like that because I had plenty of other chances to get in it and I did, um, and you know I you know I, I've been very happy with it and uh, it, it's led me down this road of learning a lot more about Austrian economics and uh, you know just what sound money is and how it affects civilization and writing books like the one that we got to write. So the beginning of the book starts out basically saying that you want readers to come away with knowing how to build their lives on a solid ground as opposed to like a you know foundation on sand as the mm. parable that Jesus talks about. Mm. And what's interesting is that you aren't just saying we want people to build their financial life on this. Mm. Like mm. you want people to build their life on that. And that's connected to a lot of other things. Mm. Can you explain why that's sort of the heart of the book is to help readers see the advantage of building their life on solid ground? Yeah. So money is sort of like a, a base layer of civilization. I, I'm a programmer and I've built a lot of different things, including websites and, uh, you know, different apps and things like that. Um, and, and the thing that uh, as, as a programmer that I always think about is what stack are you building on, right? Um, back in the 90s, there was like two choices for web servers. There was something called Apache, which was built on Linux, and IIS, which was built on Windows. And every programmer knew um, that building on Apache was way more scalable than building on IIS because IIS was on Windows and it consumed way too many resources and had a GUI and all this other stuff that was unnecessary to run a highly performant web server. And money is sort of like that for civilization. The money that you are using, the money that uh, the rest of your financial life is built on, has a deep effect on how you conduct the rest of your life. And this is why we call it sort of like a foundational piece to how you build your economic existence. You know, uh, a money that allows for theft, that's inflated away, that is very uncertain, which is uh, essentially what fiat money is, it's not a very good foundation. And it makes planning very difficult. It makes um, theft very easy. It makes rent-seeking or being a busybody um, much more profitable than would otherwise be. Um, so building your life on a solid ground, on something that isn't necessarily shifting so much, like fiat money is, is a big part of being able to plan for the future. And this is something that we should all strive to do as, uh, as Christians, trying to figure out what best things to do uh, for God in uh, a manner that is trying to 
make the future the best it can be, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, w- with respect to God. That That's ultimately what we want to do. Yeah. You know, the importance of sound money seems to be lost on the ears of some of my leftist progressive <laughs> Christian friends. Mm. And I'm not exactly sure why those things seem to be, like, if there's any, <laughs> I know libertarians don't, don't have a huge investment in the term systemic racism and in systemic injustice and all of those kinds of things. But if there is anything that's systemic, it is the issue of, of money, right? Like if, if, you know, case in point of a, an institution that is a purveyor of systemic injustice would be the Federal Reserve, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not exactly what the left means by systemic or institutional injustice, but it's very clear to me that they better pay very close attention to such things. Hmm. And so have you had any conversations with people who are more left-leaning, tend to vote Democrat, you know, maybe Bernie bros kind of people that are willing to hear the importance of sound money? Or I don't know, do you have any experience in that realm? Yeah, I do have experience with that. So I wrote another book uh, called The Little Bitcoin Book, and that was also co-authored with seven other authors. And that one is meant to be sort of like something that you can just pick up, you know, if you don't know anything about Bitcoin. And it, it specifically tries to appeal to maybe more of that segment. And it talks about human rights, um, you know, how people in Venezuela, for example, um, mm, are using yeah. it as a way to escape from the oppression of the monetary oppression that they're um, getting in Venezuela. Um, and how people really need uh, a stateless money as a way to get out from the government that might oppress them. Um, this yeah. doesn't necessarily occur to, you know, like the Bernie bros or whatever that you were talking about. Uh, so like pointing that out and making the sort of human rights case seems to work a little bit better for them. Um, obviously, we wrote Thank God for Bitcoin, like aimed at the Christian market, um, and you know there, uh, you know, a couple of our authors, I, I think, could be uh, considered progressive Christians, and that's okay. Like, there's still something at the essence uh, which we try to touch on this book, which is that you know stealing is wrong, and and really, if you, that's really all the exegesis you need from the Bible to know that like what the Federal Reserve is doing, what really every bank at every level is doing, which is expanding the money supply through loans is ultimately not a good thing. And it's uh, it's against God's law. It's against mm-hmm. the law that's written on our hearts. And if we really understand that, then, you know, like you kind of have to opt out of the system and go to something else. And yeah. we're trying to show Bitcoin as the alternative. So what, aside from the theft piece, which you just mentioned, what are some things that in the scriptures for you illustrate the need for sound money. I mean, I realize mm. there's the book, by the way, is chock full of verses that mm. illustrate points that you're making throughout. Mm. Um, and not all of them are directly related to sound money, but what are the ones that sort of like, which ones did you choose as, you know, ones that really resonate with you? Well, um, a couple of them really resonate with me. One is, um, you know, the debtor is servant to the lender. And uh, and this is one of the things that I really realized through writing this book and doing the study with these guys, is that the current system is set up so that consumption is brought forward by debt. That's essentially what debt allows you to do, is to bring consumption forward. And that's how most of civilization is now being built. It's you bring consumption forward instead of saving, 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 and then building whatever it is that you've saved up for, 
instead you bring consumption forward, you get what you want, and then you're enslaved for however long that you have to pay it off. And this is happening at every level. It's, uh, it's happening at the government level. It's happening at the business level. It's happening at the personal level. Every, every, everyone is able to get what they want now and be enslaved rather than sort of the biblical model, which is you know, sowing and then reaping, right? Reaping what you sow. Instead, you get to reap first and then be enslaved later, um, which is completely the opposite, I think, of what God's design for humanity is. The other thing that really uh, struck me is... Um, Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Now, if you just sort of read that verse, sort of gloss over it, it, it seems like, okay, well, you should work so that you could give to charity or something like that. But that's not how I read the verse. When I, when I think about like sharing with one who has need, it's really about needs in the market, right? It's, it's something that you can give to the market that the market wants, that the market requires, uh, something that is unique to you, some um, skill or uh, product that you can produce that the market needs and is willing to pay for. And contributing that is a big part of society. And, and uh, that verse specifically contrasts stealing to working in that regard. Stealing is just sort of like a zero-sum game where you're taking things from people for your own benefit. Uh, whereas working and doing something that is fruitful, that the market actually wants, that others need, that is at the heart of what it really means to be Christian and what it means to be fulfilling God's will and living a life that uh, glorifies God. Why do you think people miss the importance of sound money? Hmm. I, th I think you sort of alluded to it with the consumer mentality, but I don't know if you want to expand more on that. Yeah, I, I, the the reason why people don't really get sound money is that it's never taught to them. And um, really, uh, when, whenever we talk about money, we only really ever talk about the numerator and never the denominator. Um, it's how many dollars do we have? They, they don't really talk about how much of it there is. Um, you know, once in a while, you'll you'll hear an economist talk about the M two money supply or something like that. But we're, we've been conditioned to only look at the numerator and as if that's the entirety of what, uh, you know, what money is all about. It's, uh, okay, you have $5, um, you know, prices are going up or prices are going down, but really has nothing to do with the denominator. When in fact, the denominator has everything to do with it. The denominator, mm. in this case, expanded by like 35% last year. When, uh, M2 money supply went from 15.5 trillion to like 19.5 trillion. Um, that's a significant dilution of dollars. And people don't understand that because they're never taught that. And it, it's, it's not something we learn in school about, you know, dilution or whatever. And we, we only think about the numerator and, um, you know, people seem to be happy about that until they learn about all of this other stuff that's coming. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of people that live in that have gone through some form of hyperinflation from different countries. Uh, a lot of them in South America, for example, um, and they're they're like, yeah, it, it is horrible. When, whenever you encounter this stuff, you finally realize that they've been lying to you all along. And I think for a lot of Americans, um, this is sort of like, you know, their first pass at like learning about inflation. They don't, they don't really get it. I mean, in the 70s, it there was... so slowly. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there was some in, in the 70s, right? Like there, yep, was, yep. There, there was a stagflation and so on. But now, you know, like it's, uh, it's so sudden 
And you know, there, there's uh, you know, help wanted signs everywhere, but no one is working. What's going on? And then you're seeing like lumber prices, aluminum prices, plastic prices, you know, copper prices, all these raw material prices going up like crazy. You know, that's going to filter through the economy. They're going to see the price rises. We're probably getting gonna get into the conversation about like uh, you know, price controls and things like that, which always come up whenever you have inflation like that. But yeah, it, 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 it's all coming to a head um, largely because of uh, what's happened in the last year. But people just don't know about it because they're never taught. Yeah. Yeah. So now is a good opportunity for people to learn more about it because, you know, they can, you know, depending on what you're doing in your life, you might be seeing the grocery prices or the raw materials prices rise in a way that seem unprecedented. Hmm. And, you know, pe- some people do remember the 70s. But they, you know, they they see that as oh well, the government will solve it by just doing something else different. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the the seventies, uh, you know, that that was after Nixon's uh, break to gold, so there was some catching up to do from all the spending on Vietnam and social programs that happened in the late sixties, um, and and you know it, it did catch up, um, and they were able to repeg it to the petrol uh, dollar and everything else. But, you know, the 80s, they started using the Federal Reserve funds rate and lowering that as a, as a mechanic to essentially stimulate the economy whenever it would slow down. Except they've run out of, you know, slowdowns because, like, they've got to zero. They've done quantitative easing. Really, they, they have to go negative or sell off their gold reserves mm-hmm. or sell off, like, you know, all the, all the land that the federal government owns. They have to start doing something else to stimulate the economy, they, they've kind of run out of bullets. And we're at this weird juncture where we're going to see some serious inflation and like there are no more tools left, which doesn't really bode well. But, you know, yeah. thankfully we have a tool. We have a release valve in Bitcoin where people can sort of opt out and maybe it brings uh, some of this stuff, uh, you know, some of the collapse a little faster. But ultimately, like for those that want to get on the arc, you know, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get to specifically Bitcoin. I have a few more questions before we get there. <laughs> um, and so I'm kind of holding out the tease, I guess. Um, mm. One one thing about your book that is interesting is you spend, I think, maybe a whole chapter on how it affects the church specifically, mm. Mm. and particularly churches, um, individual churches making sort of consumerist like decisions. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so a lot of churches are these days run a lot like a lot like fiat businesses than they should be. I mean, where they should be like religious institutions, um, and that that's a sad reality of the current sort of dynamic because a lot of them end up like uh, getting huge mortgages to buy these big beautiful buildings on nice plots of land at the right location and so on. Um, and they they get into a lot of debt. And once once a church is in debt, um, it's it starts having to service that debt instead of serving God. And that's a real tough position to be in because everything comes at the cost of really getting more tithing congregants. And this is something that we point out in the book is that's not necessarily the truth. That's not necessarily the thing that you know you should focus on. So. What's considered successful in like sort of the American 
Protestant evangelical realm is being sort of like a megachurch, right? Where you have lots and lots of congregants. It isn't about glorifying God necessarily. It's about numbers and how successful a business are you. It's it's always sort of like measured almost in business terms. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how they're run. It's, it's, it's all about um, making sure that your uh, top line and bottom line are both growing and that... Uh, that you're able to get enough people tithing and so on. And, uh, and we think that that really sort of corrupts the gospel in ways that are not good. Uh, where, you know, you don't necessarily hear sermons that you need to hear, but, you know, is, can be kind of unpopular. Instead, you get lots of sermons about, you know, hey, what's your spiritual gift or, you know, um, you know how to parent better. Or, you know, I, a lot of times I, I feel like churches are, talking about stuff that's not even in the Bible because it's just kind of popular, right? Let's yeah. let's have an Enneagram study. It's like, okay, what does that have to do with scripture? But, you know, that <laughs> it's popular. It gets more people in the building. It gets more engagement. So that's what they do. It, 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 the church has become more a business instead of a, the body of Christ. And that that's something that we wanted to uh, well, maybe not in those particular words, but that that that's essentially what we're talking about in that chapter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's get on really close to Bitcoin. I want to talk one more thing, sort of mm-hmm. preliminary to that, which I think is in the back of minds of a lot of people. I'm going to just for the moment assume that our listeners have a basic understanding of how money became money, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to go all tell the story of barter to money <laughs> and, and to gold standard or whatever. But there is this situation in which gold did not perform the way that we think it would. And which, you know, you said that the the two books, mm. the Holzman and Gary North books, talk about, you know, returning to the gold standard, which I guess at their time, you know, if it were feasible, is the better choice mm. in the sense of like, oh, well, that's what we have. It's the best option that's available, possibly, mm. uh, at least in their opinion. And to some extent, I think before Bitcoin, that's Probably the case, mm. uh, but but gold had its own problems, and it was, let's talk a little bit about that because that sets the stage for why Bitcoin can be the ideal solution. Yeah, so gold's main problem is that it's physical. Believe it or not, um, the fact that you can hold it in your hand is actually the big detriment. Um, the reason why is because it is very difficult to to transport that over space, right? Like. Uh, it doesn't have, uh, as economists call it, uh, saleability across space. Uh, that, that, that's, I think, how safety in a moose would put it. Um, it's, it's hard to transport it from one place to the other. So treasure ships of yesteryear, for example, had to carry their gold with them whenever they did a long voyage. Um, and if a storm hit and the you know, ship, ship's cargo went down with it, then all that treasure would be essentially sunken treasure. That's why that, those exist, because they had to bring the gold with them. This ultimately led to fractional reserve banking, because people didn't like having to carry gold across, because that would make you the target of thieves and so on. Um, so instead, what, what they would do is they would use banknotes or you know, redeemable banknotes as as a proxy, that way they didn't have to carry so much gold when uh, when going over distance. And that's ultimately uh, what led to fractional reserve banking. That's ultimately what led to fiat money. So in a sense, the fiat money that we have now is sort of the child of trying to make gold as convenient as possible. It's not convenient enough because it is very uh, it, it is physical and it needs to actually be transported in order to do final settlement. 
So uh, when we talk about you know, the shortcomings of gold, it's very much related to the fact that the current world, um, as it exists today, most of the transactions are done digitally, right? Like when you buy something on Amazon, you pay for it with your credit card. And the reason the credit card exists is to fill a market need, which is the ability to pay without having to transport physical cash or physical gold over to the entity that you're buying from. And that that makes it so much easier. <laughs> and that that that's how a lot of web businesses and many other businesses have been built. It's this ability to transport value over space in a very efficient way. And that's where gold is uh, you know, is a detriment. It's not digital. Um, and this is why Bitcoin, at least to me, is a much better sound money because not only is it transportable over space. But because it's not, it, it is very easily transportable over space. Um, it doesn't have this temptation that gold always has of essentially turning into fiat money through factional reserve banking via central bank consolidation and centralization mm-hmm. of all the gold supply. Enter Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a there's a um, one, one of my friends uh, has said that you know. Bitcoin basically said to gold, hold my beer, you know, like <laughs> you're here, we can, we can improve upon the, you know, the almost, you know, cause I see gold as sort of like, well, if people would just stick to a gold standard, we wouldn't have this problem. The problem is people don't stick to it. Mm-hmm. And Bitcoin seems to solve the problem of being able to stick to it because it's not centralized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's the key. Um, gold has a tendency to centralize because people don't like, Securing physical things—it's—it's it's very hard to secure, a, you know, four hundred ounce gold bar in your house, right? Like somebody <laughs> might come and take it, and if you bury it, you might forget where it is, and you know, this—who knows what might happen to it. Um, the thing about Bitcoin that's uh, very nice is that you can custody it yourself without needing all of the things that you would need to custody gold. If you were custodying gold really securely, you would have a safe with like really high gauge steel and like a really secure door and like a motion detection system and like, you know, armed guards That's maybe. Stuff something from the like, movies. Yeah, yeah. And that would cost a lot of money just to secure your little bit of gold. But, you know, with, with Bitcoin, you can, you can have all sorts of security around it. And it just takes you a little bit of time learning how to do it. Um, you can have something like multisig. You can have like four of seven, where you need four of seven keys. It's kind of like the nuclear football thing that presidents have. You need like two of three nuclear footballs to actually launch yeah, yeah. a nuclear missile. You can, you can have something like that for your Bitcoins, where you need like four of seven keys to sign in order to actually uh, spend the Bitcoin and so on. So it's a lot more securable, a lot more flexible. You can back it up. Um, you know, who, who's ever heard of backing up your bar of gold, right? Like um, if, if somebody <laughs> tries to steal it and you have the backup, you can... You, you, Taking you can a bar of gold it. and making it too is called fractional reserve. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the fact that you could back it, I mean, it, it has secure... It's available to be personally held. So it has this decentralization mechanic where instead of everybody sort of like outsourcing the security of their asset to a central entity, which has happened with gold over and over and over again, 
with Bitcoin, each individual can hold their own Bitcoin. And there's a lot of different wallets, a lot of different security solutions. There are even uh, you know, services like Unchained Capital and Casa that will hold one of your three or five keys for you and you know, help you in case you, you know, lose one of your keys or something like that. So they don't actually take custody, but they'll have one of the, you know, three or two, two or three keys that you need in order to actually unlock your Bitcoin. So the, it, it's a lot better in that regard. And it really truly becomes a bearer asset and doesn't have the centralization mechanic, which means that it really is decentralized and you don't have stuff like Executive Order 6102, which seized all the gold, um, in large part because all of the gold wasn't the banks. Uh, you know, if uh, if President Biden like decided today to seize all Bitcoin from people, it would be pretty hard. I mean, like he would obviously be able to go to all of the exchanges that operate in the U.S. and tell them, oh, OK, give us all your Bitcoin and probably be successful there. But there's a lot of Bitcoin that is out of those exchanges. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is one of the things that we recommend. Custody your own Bitcoin, you know, hold it. Um, it. It is scary, but, you know, you can do it. And it means that the people that, uh, you know, it, it can't be seized away from you. And it's really yours and it's really your property. So I, I think that was one of the things that kept me from getting in early is that it seemed too technically complicated. And mm. I also, the knowledge... I failed to know that I could buy partial of a coin uh, at the time. Because, uh, you know, at the time when I was paying attention, I think it was worth like $300. And I, I didn't have that much disposable income to potentially just throw away, right? Because mm. at that point, it was like, I don't know much about this. And I was, <laughs> I was influenced enough by Austrian school to not take anything other than gold and precious metals seriously. Mm. So, you know, later on, I realized, oh, this is easier, you know, for mm. in terms of like acquiring money or acquiring a Bitcoin, buying a Bitcoin or, or buying partial uh, in my case. It was easier, right? And so mm. I think a lot of people have that fear of like, okay, I don't think we quite have the fear because nobody's talking about the government confiscating Bitcoin exchanges. So like we're mm. kind of out of the weeds of that right now. But like holding your own crypto and, you know, what's the word you use? Um, Self-custody, yeah. Oh, custody. Yeah, self-custody. is a, You're right. It's a little scary. And it's like, well, what do I do? Like, I just recently had a friend talk to me about getting a hardware wallet. Mm. And I'm just like, okay, well, what if I die? My wife doesn't know how to use it. Or what if, <laughs> what if this? What if that? Like, there's just a number of things. Like, my wife has access to my Coinbase account, but she wouldn't know how to use a hardware wallet. Mm. Um, and there's a, those, those kinds of things. Now, of course, she knows how to get person who knows how to use it. But... Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like a handful of like complicatedness that it's like, oh, I'll just buy gold or oh, I'll just <laughs> live with what's going on and invest well and, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. That tends to be complicated. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. And uh, th- this is something that we see in the community. Everyone gets the Bitcoin at the price that they deserve. If um you know, like you, you kind of have to put in the work in order to actually understand how, uh, you know, how all that's of that a, works. I really like that. That's good. Yeah, I, and, and the thing is, it makes me feel bad about about how my state of things in 2013. But, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll forgive you. But you know, I, that that's you know, once you understand it and uh, and get how it works, um, you know, like a lot of these like estate planning, uh, you know, scenarios that you're talking about. The, these are there are solutions out there, right? Like you can. Uh, you know, if you say like have um, 
you know, a Casa or Unchained Capital, you can give them one of your keys and they'll walk your wife through exactly how to do it. Okay, well, he gave you this wallet or he put a backup in this uh, safety deposit box. We'll walk you through exactly how to do it. Like, and we'll, we'll, we'll sign one of them for you and we'll do everything so you get your money, right? Like that, that, that sort of thing is completely available to a lot of yeah. people. Um, and, yeah. and there are services that have uh, grown up in large part because of this complication that you're talking about. Um, and, you know, hardware wallets didn't really exist in 2013, for example. Um, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, they produced a lot of them. Uh, um, I think I have like 12 different hardware wallets in my drawer right there because, you know, um, you know, First of all, like they they like to send things to me to see if I can evaluate it or whatever. But there there's just been a lot of uh, demand for this sort of thing, and this is the beauty of yeah. the market: is that whenever something is difficult or complicated or perceived as such, um, you know, people come out with products that try to meet that demand. And yep. when when you get that, well, you you get beautiful products. Uh, I, I I you know, it used to be like one or two hardware wallets, and I wasn't very happy with either of them. Um, but nowadays there's like 12 different ones and I, I'm happy with like at least three of them that I can put it into a multi-sig setup and, you know, sound, sleep soundly at night knowing that there's no single point of failure. That if the government decides to seize one of my safety deposit boxes, I still have ways to get my Bitcoin out and do other things and, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. figure out ways to uh, get around all of the different attack scenarios against my Bitcoin. So I want to talk a little bit about objections that, mm. that some people tend to have. And I, I really only have like, you know, one that comes to mind. And of course, Peter Schiff <laughs> it happens to be like the most outstanding Bitcoin opponent. Mm. And one of the things, he I think he tweeted, he's like, you know, if aliens came to our planet and wanted to like seize what was valuable, they wouldn't choose Bitcoin, they'd choose gold. <laughs> or I forget how the, the meme actually went, but I was just <laughs> like... Okay, that's a really strange reason to say that gold is superior. And like, mm -hmm. I understand, look, I understand the impulse to mm -hmm. this is a physical thing. It has mm -hmm. value. The world of digital is not something that Peter Schiff, first of all, grew up in. He had to evolve into it as an adult and adapt to it. Whereas it's a little bit different. I mean, it's totally digital, right? And mm -hmm. gold is, you know, gold's been around for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so I totally get the impulse. At the same time, that just seemed like a really big stretch. So... The objection would be that that you you said that gold was you know a disadvantage is that gold is physical, but it's you know even if I have let's say a couple ounces of gold you know as sort of my store of value let's let's say mm -hmm. that's pretty easy to to hold on to and and it does increase in value and and again I don't want this question to be about gold versus versus Bitcoin but the digital aspect of it makes people feel like it's not real. Yeah, and uh, I get that, uh, especially sort of people from around his age. I, I I will note that his son Spencer is a big Bitcoin advocate, and he he'll reply to his dad's tweets a lot of times, <laughs> telling him he's completely wrong about Bitcoin. It's it's actually kind of hilarious if you follow Spencer's account. Um, but with respect to uh, the physical nature, um, I I get that, but th this is. Peter Schiff not really understanding Austrian economics, in my opinion, because, um, you know, all value is subjective. That's part of the Austrian economics, um, you know, observations uh, is that all value is subjective. He, he's bringing in aliens as a way to establish sort of objective value for gold. Um, 
And that's uh, that's a very strange thing for him to do because aliens will have their own value system and they will value, I don't know, some other thing that they find valuable for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have a lot of water on their planet and they, they, they'll, they'll take the yeah. plentiful water from the earth or whatever. It, it's, it's a very strange uh, thing, thing to, for him to say. Um, Which means we'll probably find more gold and gold will be worthless then anyway. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, including like the NASA <laughs> asteroid, right? Like, who knows? Uh, like right. on their planet, they might have like all gold and gold is actually like, like way too plentiful Nothing. and they don't like yeah, it. It's like um, topsoil to us, yeah. Yeah, it's subjective. That's that's ultimately yeah. it. And yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the thing that a lot of people have uh, trouble with is that value being subjective and that something digital being able to have value is not a leap that they're willing to make because they 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 don't particularly value uh, digital things. But obviously, if you're younger, if you've played World of Warcraft or you know, like uh, gotten an ebook or something like that. You you understand the value of digital things. Um, yeah. it, it's not so hard for you. So yeah, you know, I, I get it. It's a generational thing, and unfortunately, he doesn't seem to want to understand it. I think we've had many people in the Bitcoin community explain this to him, but he he's known about Bitcoin since 2011, and I'd be pretty salty too if uh, if I didn't get in at Bitcoin on if I knew about Bitcoin <laughs> at a dollar and didn't get in, and I'm still crying about it at 60,000. Well, it's interesting because like you say that he doesn't seem to understand Austrian economics and he is like probably one of the only investors that I'm aware of, that are popular investors that seem to get it on a level outside of the Bitcoin situation. Like, mm. you know, he does talk about the Federal Reserve printing money and inflation is a problem and fiat currency is a problem. And so like he says all the other talking points, right? Mm. Um, so it's 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 a particularly a bit sad. So I don't know, maybe maybe he'll he secretly does embrace Bitcoin and eventually he'll be like, yeah, I was just making sure you guys knew your stuff or something. Yeah. Yeah, just turn it around. <laughs> oh, a really elaborate <laughs> troll. I, I would love to see that, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we got Trump. He, he did that. So, you know, maybe Schiff's doing that for the Austrians. So how do you foresee things taking shape? I mean, are we, you know, there's there's a comment near the end of the book about gradual, then all of a sudden, hmm. I mean, at some point, Bitcoin will either go away and be this alternate parallel world, hmm. or it will, um, I guess there's two options there, or we'll adopt Bitcoin as a global standard and it will become something completely different mm. and new in the coming in the future. I mean, how do you potentially see things taking shape? Yeah, I, I, I want to quote safety in a moose. He said, never underestimate how or something about don't ever bet on a currency when another currency is harder than you or something to that effect. When you have a, a, a really hard currency and um, I think his book, The Bitcoin Standard, laid out how you can sort of measure the soundness of the money, if you will, how hard it is with the yes, stock to right. flow ratio and so on. Yep. Um, when you have a currency that's harder than yours, it's harder than even gold and certainly harder than uh, the dollar, um, people will tend to flock to it. And we, we've been seeing that over the last 10 years. Um, since it started trading in late 2010, all the way up to now, it's uh, obviously done fantastically well as uh, you know, as more more and more people adopt it, Th this seems to me sort of like uh, the leak in the dam of like um, you know fiat and like Federal Reserve policy. It's it, it's sort of like the release valve for the economy. We're we're seeing a lot of uh, you know corporations that are looking at it as a reserve currency or a treasury currency um, as a way to store their value because they know 
that if they keep it in dollars, that it's, it's as Michael Saylor put it, a melting ice cube. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I see sort of like a, a Bitcoinization of a lot of the economy uh, as more companies, um, you know, Michael Saylor also like uh, put out a convertible note that, um, you know, gave some upside to bondholders on Bitcoin price going up based on his, uh, his company, MicroStrategies. I, I can see a lot more of that happening as, uh, you know, the dollar loses its value. Um, a lot, a lot of stocks become more Bitcoinized. Master uh, micro strategies right now trades very similarly to Bitcoin, and it's become a Bitcoinized asset as a result of, you know, they're putting a lot of Bitcoin on their balance sheet, and you know, the the bond that they issued um, is trading similarly, and so on. I expect a lot more of that to happen and Bitcoin becoming this release valve uh, for the uh, ultra low, uh, you know, interest rates that are out there and all of this money. Like there's going to be a giant sucking of all of the new money being printed into Bitcoin that will eventually cause, uh, you know, it, it would be like sort of like a sudden collapse, I think, on the order of like Weimar Republic stuff. But because Bitcoin exists, like not every asset is going to collapse because they'll be Bitcoinized to some extent. Um, even some something like Tesla has a significant amount of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. All of those things won't just sort of collapse right away. We we see like unprecedented PE ratios in the stock market, like ridiculous multiples of people's income that people are borrowing for mortgages and so on. A lot of that will go away, I think, as the store value premium on these assets sort of disappears with Bitcoin sucking that out. Yeah, but yeah, I, I like as far as the actual end game. Um, I'm reading when money dies right now to find out, like you know, how much how many parallels there will be, and you know, uh, some of the things that we think will happen. Uh, one of the things I learned is that you know the government paid a lot of these workers in the Weimar Republic to not work. Uh, which sounds kind of familiar uh, if you're paying attention <laughs> to what's happening here. No kidding. Wow. Well, Jimmy, I, I've enjoyed this conversation and, and sort of uh, reviewing for some of our listeners the, the importance of sound money and you know the importance of you know keeping Bitcoin front and center in a way that is like, hey, this is not going to go away. This is a very viable and probably ideal alternative to the the system that we have. And I, I appreciated, thank God for Bitcoin, in that, mostly in that it was geared toward the Christian who needs to know that their financial life and more than just their financial life, which we didn't actually talk about as much other than, you know, a little bit, is super important. Mm. It, you know, having a having a righteous and wise approach to life and money um, is really the goal of your book. I think you succeed really well. And so I strongly encourage our, our listeners to, to get it. So I appreciate you coming on and talking about the book and the concepts behind it. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This sort of podcast is something that I've been praying to get opportunities to be on because this is the exact audience that I want to you know, uh, tell about the book and hopefully you got, uh, your listeners can read it and you know, hand it out to their friends and make the argument, hey, this Bitcoin is the Christian thing to yeah. do and you don't, you don't need to worry about all this other stuff. Well, hey, I appreciate the sentiment there as well. So I'm sure I'll have you on again sometime in the future. All right. Happy to be on whenever. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.